We're in James 5, we'll starting verse 7. And we're going to finish the book of James by the end of the year. It's going to be awesome. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak to us today? Would you mold us today? Would you shape us today? Lord, fill us with a fresh fire, a fresh longing, a fresh desire. Lord, we want to live faithful until we are thrown in the dirt or until Jesus returns. Give us longevity of faithfulness, perseverance. In the mighty name of Jesus, all the saints say amen. Amen. I got in a hole this week listening to lectures from Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee was one of the greatest uh, New Testament scholars that the church uh, has had. And uh, he actually passed away last month, um, but was a great New Testament scholar. He helped. He worked on the committee for the NIV, helped translate um, several versions of the scriptures for us. And well, I got stuck in a series of lectures that he did on the life of Jesus. Um, and he was asking a, a group of seminary students, pastors, um, about the teaching of Jesus. He asked them this question. If you had to give me one word uh, that is most prominent or prevalent in the teaching of Jesus, what would that one word be? And he said that continually the students would respond with words like love. And love is, a, is an emphasis in Jesus' teaching, but he actually uses the word like two times, and it's when he says that all of the law is fulfilled in loving the Lord and loving neighbor. Um, but, but love is actually not the forefront of Jesus' teaching. Some would say forgiveness, and, and that's there for sure. Jesus talks about forgiveness. Um, but it's not nearly as prominent or prevalent to the New Testament as the, the word kingdom. Jesus' primary teaching from start to finish is on the kingdom. Now, uh, Fee pointed out, and I, and I think he's r- right um, here. Who am I to say if he's right or not? Um, but <laughs> I, I think that there's a, a point here that we miss sometimes, and it's this. That in the Hebraic mind, the idea of kingdom was not necessarily a location or a, or, or a space. When we think of, and, and, and scholars actually talk about, this is one of the problems when, when the Greek comes to English. Um, in English, when we think of a kingdom, we really think about territory, right? Um, Britain's territory or, or, or any other nation's territory. But in the Hebraic mind and in, in the teaching, kingdom was not just about space, but more often than not, it was about a period of time. So, for instance, the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Saul and the kingdom of Solomon, it was all the same territory, but when you talk about David's kingdom, you're talking about a particular period of, of time. Does this make sense? Um, and so we could talk about uh, James, the James 1, or, or whoever, whatever king you want to pull up. And they could govern the same space, but when you talk about their kingdom, you're talking about the, the time. Now, when you have that thought in mind, you actually see it unraveling quite a bit in the New Testament. For instance, in Acts 1, right before the ascension... The disciples asked Jesus this. Um, Acts 1, verses 6 through 8 says, When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He says to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. So they say, Will you at this time? Time, restore the kingdom. And he says, it's not for you to know times or seasons 
And so we see this playing out in several occasions. The messianic hope that was prophesied in the Old Testament, the messianic hope was for final um, justice. So much of the prophets is about justice, about when the oppressors meet their, the day of God's vengeance. The, the, the kingdom brings finality to, to sickness being eradicated. Death will be eradicated. The, the lion and the lamb will lie down together. When you talk about kingdom from the mindset of the prophets, from the Old Testament prophets, we're very much looking for an age or an era, a period of time. The Jewish longing was for the Messiah, the new David. And, and even David's celebration was that, that David led in this kind of golden era of Israel being strong and, and uh, victorious in battle. And in, in, the, in the culture and in the, in the mind of the first century believer, the Jewish uh, follower of God in the first century, the fact that there was sickness in a community was a testament to the brokenness of creation. The fact that there were people demonically oppressed out of their mind was a testament to sin, to the brokenness of the world, was a testament to the oppression of Satan on a region. And so when Jesus comes and he starts preaching and talking about the kingdom and the kingdom coming upon them, he preaches that and then he heals the sick because he's making right what is broken. Then he drives out demons because, again, the testament of brokenness is demonically oppressed people. And so he comes to show he's the new king, and he drives out demons. And so in Jesus' ministry, we constantly get this thing of looking for the kingdom, preaching the kingdom. And, and everywhere he goes, he heals, delivers, leprosy goes, blind people see. Because he's, he's showing us that he's going to bring the final restoration of all things. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 19 through 23. This is where John the Baptist is in prison, and John the Baptist gets discouraged. Um, he's, he's waiting for the finality of restoration, and he hasn't seen it yet. And so this is what the scripture says. When the men had come to him, come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us in that, uh, sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so John the Baptist says, I'm tired of waiting. I'm, un I'm growing discouraged. Jesus, tell me you're the one. Jesus is actually playing with prophecy from Isaiah 61 here, um, where he talks about this kind of healing being brought. So Jesus heals the sick, cleanses the leper, raises the dead, and then says, go tell John, I've done all these things. Don't be offended with me. Blessed are those who are not offended with me. Meaning, when you don't understand, John, what I'm doing or why I'm doing it or when I'm doing it, blessed are you when you hold fast anyway. Now, on the one hand, every time a prostitute repented of her sin, and sat at the table with Jesus and shared a meal, the kingdom had come. On one hand, every time a leper came to Christ and walked away with whole skin, 
able to be reacclimated to society, able to work again, love their kids again. Every time a leper was healed, the kingdom had come upon them, come near them. But on the other hand, that the hour has not yet come. So this is basic uh, New Testament theology. The New Testament teaches really clearly that the kingdom is now, that we have glimpses of the kingdom, moments of the kingdom, healing and deliverance, these, these flashes of the kingdom in the earth. It's now and the kingdom is not yet. It's an hour that we have not yet seen. And we're to live waiting for it, longing for it, anticipating it. And I think that even in Acts 1, when the disciples say, Jesus, is it at this hour that you'll restore the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know hours. It's not for you to know times or seasons. But the Spirit will come upon you, and you'll have power to preach the gospel to the four corners of the earth. The, the, the emphasis here is, it's not for you to know when everything will be made right. You will not know the exact time. But in the meantime, I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to bring the kingdom to Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost, to the ends of the earth. And so even there, we feel the now and not yet tension, right? Like, not now. You're not going to have everything right. Everything's not going to be totally solved yet. But in the meantime, here's the power of the Holy Ghost. Preach the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Even, even there, we feel the now and not yet tension. So now, as James is getting ready to unwind, he's obviously he's working towards the conclusion. He's going to start talking to us about what it means to patiently wait for the coming kingdom. To be patient, like a farmer, to wait for the hour of harvest. To, to be steadfast, to establish your hearts in the time of in-between. Now let me read you our text from James, and we'll do our best to just kind of follow James's logic um, into this idea of, of living in the in-between. Chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Be patient, therefore, being patient about it. Yet you also be patient. The emphasis of the text is patience or, or waiting well for the hour of the kingdom. Now, let's remember the 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 context here. We read last week as James rebuked a, a group of people who society would call in the day landowners. These people were rich. They owned all the land up and essentially everyone else worked the land of these said people. Now what James rebuked them for was the landowners were hiring people, paying them very low wages or not paying them at all, then selling all the crop to other towns to make a greater wage while the people of their region starve. So James is rebuking this group of people for their unrighteous acts. He's telling them, do you remember how much James talked last week about, he told the, the landowners, howl and weep 
for the day of the Lord is coming. He said, you're fattening your hearts for the day of slaughter. So James has confronted this group of people who are oppressing the Christians, oppressing the common person. And then at the end of confronting these people, James turns to the Christians and says, be patient. What is he saying? He's saying there will be oppression in this world. You will be wronged. You will be misunderstood. There are times where people will belittle you, undercut you. You will suffer patience. Vengeance is mine, says God. Meaning we wait for the day of the Lord when God brings perfect judgment. So, so in context, what we're finding is that these saints live in a world where people treat them like garbage. And James says, in response to them treating you like trash, this is what I want you to do. Be patient, establish your heart, and long for the day of the Lord. You are not to wrong because you're wrong. You guys hear this? This is really what James is getting at. When you're mistreated, you don't then turn around and mistreat. When you're slandered, you don't then around turn around and slander. You put your face on the ground and you say, Jesus, come quickly. He's calling these oppressed brothers and sisters to remain faithful. Keep their peace. Live righteous. He's also calling them to not lust or covet after the, the wealth of the wicked. This is a, this is a theme through the scriptures. I wish we should take the time to, to hash it out a bit. Um, but the theme is that sometimes saints in the in-between, when you get tired and frustrated, you, you can begin to covet or lust after the things of the world. That you'll look at your name, the psalmist will say this, the righteous, the wicked man prospers. The wicked man is wealthy. The wicked man is established. And, and I, the righteous man, am hungry and tired. Then the psalmist says, my feet almost slipped, God, but you established me. And so the psalmist will even show us there are times where we start to look at the prosperity of those who act out unrighteousness and we can get jealous. And, and James says, stay steady, brothers and sisters. Don't you lust after the wealth of the wicked. Don't look at their lives. You know, you, you see someone handling their finances in a way that's unlawful and profiting off of it, and you know it, and everybody knows it. There, there's a day coming. There's a day coming. Don't you follow in their footsteps. So we're, we're getting these themes out of the text. And what we're seeing in the text, okay, this is what I've really, I've really got to drive home for us, is that Christianity in the in-between does not fix everything in your life. Okay, you hear me? In the in-between, we pray, and in this instance, we pray God bring justice, God bring peace, God restore, and he will. He will. But the promise is not that God's going to fix everything today. It's not the promise. And anyone who propagates or presents to you a kind of Christianity that says, Christians get to live in total, unending states of perfect peace. We don't believe in nirvana. It's not what we're advocating for. We are advocating that in the face of storm and trial and hell, you can walk with God. Christianity does not say God will drive every storm for the rest of your life away from you. Christianity says God will drive the storm from your heart away from you. The storm inside me, the fear inside of me, God is delivering me from. 
And so we realize just in this plain text that the, the Christians in James' day and our day, we are living in a state of in-between where we have glimpses and breakthroughs and moments of answered prayer, but we are also promised that in this world we will have tribulation. And what do you do with it? Living in anticipation of what's to come. That's what James is calling the church to do. Live in anticipation of what's to come. Long for the fulfillment of the promise. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time. Note, there are sufferings of this present time. Paul's hungry, tired, in prison, beaten, stoned to death, though he gets back up. There are sufferings of this present time. But Paul says that they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The imagery of... Uh, of a mother carrying a child for nine months and, and the, 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 the waiting that happens. And, uh, you know, you, any of you pregnant women, my wife sometimes, uh, when, she, when she doesn't go on time and then they're walking around the neighborhood and they're doing all this weird stuff, you know, try to make it happen. And, and Haley would always talk about the pain. Oh, the pain. But the moment the baby comes, nobody talking about the pain, right? The moment the baby's in your arms, she's talking about, we need another one. And that's how I got in the mess I'm in. <laughs> the joy of the child in your arms causes this, the, the, the waiting to seem like nothing, causes the pain of the hour of travail to feel like nothing. The joy of the baby overshadows everything else. And, and that's what Paul's arguing here. The day that Jesus returns... The, the pain and the suffering that we endure in this hour will feel like nothing. It will be so overshadowed by the glory on Jesus' face. And so James says, establish your hearts. How do we establish our hearts? By longing, by quoting, by reminding one another of the promise, of the things to come. We are to live expecting what, what is called the imminent return. The imminent return means the quick return. It's coming quickly. The the teaching of James here is not, he's not saying to his church, Jesus will emphatically come before you die. But he is saying to his church, he could. He can come whenever he wants. And so many times people will say, oh, everyone says Jesus is coming in their day. Well, because he could. He sure could. That doesn't mean that our teaching is that he will come. I'm not telling you when he's going to come. James is saying he can't. Live expectant. Live ready. And, and James is going to begin to argue that if the church quits living ready, they quit. Think about the New Testament talking about watching. You quit watching. You quit living ready. There are some areas where we'll begin to fall apart. We'll start to lust after the riches of this world. Then immediately, watch, watch how he said, be patient, establish your hearts. Therefore, brothers, be patient. And then he said this. And don't grumble against one another. Why does he say that? Because when you stop living, anticipating the coming of Christ, you start bickering with each other. And, and you know, it was college football week, and my team won, so praise God, from whom all blessings flow. It's been about 15 years since we won one of those. Okay, um, watch, watch a sports team in the moment when things start not going their way. And the moment the quarterback throws an interception, right, that, 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 that hour, that moment shows how disciplined the team is. 
Because if the quarterback starts pointing his finger at the receiver, who then points his finger at the quarterback, who starts to yell at the offensive lineman because they didn't block well, and the team starts to bicker and grumble against each other, it's very apparent that they have a lack of discipline, a lack of shared vision. They are undisciplined, and they're ununited in their goals and their visions. And the church does the same thing. You stop, you quit longing for, reminding your heart. The first time we have a hard season, someone gets sick or financially things fall apart or there's some kind of drama in the church. If you are not actively leaning forward, holding to the hem of garment, the garment of Jesus, say, come back quickly. You'll start thinking that, you know, if, if, if your brother or sister in the church who's gossiping is not going to shut up, I'll make them shut up. Rather than. Rather than in humility, reminding them of the coming of the Lord and longing for God's justice that will be established, you'll, you'll start to feel like you've got to fix everything. And this is part of the text. We don't fix everything. We will not fix everything. Now you want to just, just bring that theme into our current political climate because things are about to get messy again. Just be ready for that. Um, church, we, we want to see everything fixed. We want to see justice and righteousness established. And you should uh, lawfully um, lobby for righteousness in our nation. There's no reason you shouldn't. But, but the answer is, is not in politics. And, and we won't fix everything. In, in, we, won't, we just won't. We, their wickedness is, is in this world. Our, our hope is that hearts of stone turn to hearts of flesh. So James turns and says, don't grumble. Make sure you're not grumbling. But, but remember that the judge is where? You remember what he said? The judge is standing at the door. What does that mean? He sees and hears everything you're saying. And he just, all you got to do is put his foot across that threshold and it's done. Remember that the judge is at the door. Live aware of the holiness of God standing at the door. Okay, and then he's going to give us three examples of patience. Again, the theme is patience, perseverance, as we wait in a world of wickedness. The first, the first example he gives us is the farmer. The farmer waits for the former and the latter rains, he says. In the Middle East, the former rain um, would come in the autumn and the latter rain in the spring, and the, the former rain would kind of break up the soil, soften the soil so that they could till, and the latter rain would, would help the crop to fully produce, would come and kind of bring the the fruit to fruition, if you will. Um, the idea here is that only the stupidest of the stupid farmers till the soil, sweat to put the seed in the ground, water it, and then about December just decide they're going to quit. Farmers, farmers don't go through all the labor of tilling the land, of planting the seed, of preparing, of weeding, of of preparing the thing to come to fruition. And then they don't get tired of waiting and stop. Why? Because they understand seasons. They understand seasons. And James is saying to the Christians, if you get frustrated in the dry time in between, okay, watch, the former rain and the latter rain, the the idea of the the, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. If in the in-between, when the rains stop, things get dry, if in the in-between, when things stop, you don't see yet what you think you should be seeing, 
you get tired and frustrated. You start looking around at your neighbors. They don't live for God and they seem to have peace. You start to lust after. Oh, they seem to have pleasure. And you get up and walk away. The scripture calls that idiotic. Why? Because the rain comes in the spring. And all of the images of resurrection being spring-related. The rain comes in the spring. The dead are going to rise. Hold fast. Steady your heart. Remember the farmer. You're, remember you're waiting for the crop to rise up. Don't quit now. Second, he tells us to think about the prophets, okay? The prophets, this, this feels a little bit like Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of fame of faith. The, the prophets are forced to wait. Okay, let's just think about Jeremiah for a minute. Jeremiah prophesies what? The fall of Jerusalem to Babylon prophesies it for years. There's going to be a fall. There's going to be a coming fall. And there are false prophets who rise up and say, Jeremiah is a liar. We're the real prophets. And then so they beat Jeremiah up, throw him in a well. And you know what he has to do? He has to keep prophesying what God told him to say. There's an hour coming when Jerusalem's going to fall. They beat him up, mock him in front of his family. He feels stupid. He's tired of saying it. God, win. Win, God. But what is he called to do? He's called to stand there and to keep prophesying. The prophets are, Isaiah's prophesying the, the suffering servant, the one who would be wounded for our afflictions, crushed for our iniquities. But Isaiah doesn't see it. But he's called to stand there and say it anyway. In, 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 in a very, very real way, James is calling you prophets who are prophesying the return of Christ. And like Jeremiah, you don't know when it's going to happen. It might, like Isaiah, it might not even happen in your lifetime. But only the false prophet backs off the word. Only the weak, fleshy prophet quits in the in-between season. Even when it feels like all of hell is having its way in our culture. You're called to stand with all of the backbone of Jeremiah and say, Christ will return. And, and I don't really care about all of your philosophical jargon. I don't really care about all of your cultural momentum and throwing away the idea of relative truth. I don't care about your reshaping history or trying to undercut all of my uh, the authority of Scripture. I don't care about your great intellectual arguments. Keep your jargon. Christ will return. Even John the Baptist is feeling this moment, right? Sitting in prison. Why isn't Jesus doing it yet? Why isn't he doing it yet? So he sends his disciples, go ask him. Go make, just go make sure. I don't want to lose my head if this isn't the real thing. And so Jesus heals the sick, cleanses the leper, raises the dead, and then says to John, blessed are those who are not offended by me. In other words, I'm doing things in my timing, my way, it's my prerogative, John. Blessed are you when you hold fast and don't get so caught up in needing to understand when, why, where, and what. Trust. Trust me. And that leads us perfectly into the last example he pulls to. Job. Okay? He says, remember Job. He wants us to, to think. When, when we read the book of Job, we see from the start that, that Satan is saying to God, um, the only reason Job loves you it's because he has perfect peace, because he's wealthy and healthy and prosperous. Job loves you because you take care of him. 
Let him feel one ounce of suffering and he'll turn his back on you. We know what's happening in the heavens. Reading the text. Job has no idea. All Job, Job knows is things were going really well one day. And the next, everything went to pot. His kids are dead. He's sick. He's tired. And he's got this nagging wife who keeps telling him to curse God and die. Shoo! Shoo! You know what Proverbs says about a nagging wife, right? Better to live outside than live in the house. A nagging wife. Job's wife's saying, curse God and die, man. Just quit. His friends are saying, you must be living in sin. There's a reason you're judged. Job's saying, I don't actually understand at all what's happening. No idea. But I trust the God in heaven. And I trust that he knows. And I trust that in his timing, things will be made right. And I trust that in his plan, things will shake out in a way that he gets glory and I'm cared for. And so, so Job's going to have moments where he's like frustrated and, you know, cries and he won't curse God, but he'll curse the day that he's born. You know, he's, I'm not going to curse you, but I'm going to let you know I'm mad. There's room for that every now and then. But in the midst of it all, Job trusts. And, and James is saying, remember Job. He didn't understand everything but he held fast to the faithfulness of God. And then he's saying, and we knew how things turned out. We know that things turned out well, that Job was prospered and blessed. And he's, he is saying that in the text of Scripture, we know how things turn out. In the prophecy of the Holy Word of God, we know how things will end. With Jesus' foot on the head of the serpent, crushing it finally. And, and sickness will get sick and roll over and die. And death will be laid in the grave never to get up again. And every demonic power will be, will be finally in bondage. And all things will be made right. So, so watch what he just did there. He said, like the, like the farmer, make sure that you don't get up and walk away in the dry season. That would be really dumb. Then he said, like the prophet... You don't get to stop proclaiming the word just because it doesn't come to pass in your timing. You got to keep proclaiming it even when it hasn't come to pass yet. Even when everyone calls you stupid, everyone calls you dumb, Peter calls them scoffers. Scoffers will come scoffing saying, where is the day of the Lord? Even when scoffers come, you keep proclaiming. Remember Jeremiah, keep preaching that word. And then third, he said, and remember Job. Job didn't understand everything. He just lived faithfully anyway. You are not privy to all of God's calendar. Like God doesn't give you his times and dates. Not how this thing works. Like Job, live faithful anyway. We know the end. The kingdom of Christ that we are finally longing for is an age. It's an era that is yet to come. It is a period that will be established when Jesus returns. It will last forever. And in that age, Jesus is, the, the light of Jesus' face will fill the city. There will be no need for sun or moon. In that age, there will be no pain. Every tear will be wiped by the hand of God. There's an age coming. It's not here yet. We have glimpses of it, moments where it feels like it's breaking in. But in the meantime, uh, Peter said, God is not slow in his coming. He's not slow. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. What is Peter saying? 
It's, it's not that God is slow or off time or that God's just sitting back and living lazy. God is actively asking his church to walk in the power of the spirit and to preach the gospel because he's patiently giving every person time to repent. He's patiently giving the earth time for repentance. So what do we do in the meantime? We keep prophesying the word. Jesus is coming. What do we do in the meantime? I don't know. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I would say that's what Jesus told the disciples. It's not for you to know times or seasons, but the power of the Spirit will come upon you. And then preach the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In the meantime, we walk in the power of the Spirit, we preach the gospel, and we prophesy the return of Christ when all things will be made right. Don't grow weary. You can't grow frustrated. You can't backbite. You can't gossip or slander. You can't lust or covet after the things of this world. Like a faithful prophet, you refuse to back down. And when you don't understand, when you lose a loved one, you prayed, you prayed, you prayed, you prayed, and God didn't heal your loved one. Or you get a diagnosis and you do everything you know to do. You jump, you roll, you confess, you shout. You use oil and horns. You do all the things. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have had a shofar bloat in your face. Do all the things and healing doesn't come. Like Job, you just keep living faithful because you don't understand everything. You don't understand everything. We will suffer. We're going to have some wins and we're going to have some losses. Paul said we wrestle. In wrestling, there's some times you get smacked. But the point is, you get back up and you keep swinging. You keep throwing punches. You keep preaching the gospel. You keep living faithful. Job didn't get it all. We don't get it all either. Anyone who tries to propagate this idea of Christianity that you're going to have a perfect life, if you just say yes to Jesus, you'll have perfect. I'm not a car salesman, okay? I'm not trying to sell you a 2012 Kia. Come to Jesus. And you'll know real intimacy and peace in your heart and the sweetness of knowing God is like no other. Those things are very true. It may still get sick in the days to come. We'll pray for healing and some of us will be healed miraculously and it will be beautiful. And we'll celebrate and then we'll bury others. And you know what we'll do when we bury them? We'll celebrate. And when it's sooner or later, all of us are going to get laid in the dirt. And on that day, what we'll do is we'll, we'll remind our hearts that there's a final day of resurrection and you just keep prophesying. That's the emphasis that James wants us to walk away from.